yeah, how do you get clients? Unfortunately, there's no magic recipe. You have to like go to conferences, do the workshops, do content marketing, open source, but it's not a magical thing. Hey everybody, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jess. And we are two internet friends exploring the intersection of independent business and rails. Welcome to Indie Rails. Today we have a special guest. His name is Ernesto Tagworker. Welcome to the show, Ernesto. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? From what I know, you are founder and CTO of Umbu Labs. Yeah, we're a small software development shop. We work a lot with Ruby, Rails, and JavaScript. And I think the most interesting part about my story is that I started doing freelance development. And then at some point I was like, I want to go on vacation and I want my company <laughs> to continue to build for our time. So, you know, I put a brand on it and then it was like, okay, now we're Ombu Labs. And it's not just Ernesto, it's like Ernesto plus a few developers. And then at some point we were like, okay, how can we scale? And we thought, well, maybe we can come up with product type services to help us get more business. And that's when fastruby.io came to be. And yeah, it's helped us grow quite a lot in the past seven years. So I'm happy to talk about that and share my lessons learned and big mistakes that I've made in the recent years. You said seven years. Is that when Umbu Labs was born or is that when you started freelancing? Actually, no. Umbu Labs, I guess it's really hard to pinpoint like when it started, but I want to say it started about like 11 years ago when... I was just doing freelance development. I was just very passionate about like building a software as a service product. And that's when I started Ombu Shop, which is basically like Shopify for Latin America. So 11 years ago, Shopify was not there. I was like, let's build it and see what happens. Like, how hard can it be, right? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so you were going to build Shopify? Yeah. So basically Shopify for Latin America... And eventually we got funding from like Startup Chile and Plug and Play, and it was cool and all. But uh, anyway, I stopped consulting to pay for product development when I got funding, which was, I think it was a big mistake. Shouldn't have done that. (laughs) Why was that a mistake? Yeah, because I really like the idea of like bootstrapping and freelancing to pay for product development. So at the time I was living in Argentina, my expenses were really low. I didn't have kids. I wasn't married. So I was doing freelance like about 50% of the time. And then I was using all that money to just work on my product. And then when I got some funding, I was like, well, I want to focus on this 100% of the time. So I dropped my clients and then worked for about nine months, like straight on the product. And then I run out of funding. And then I was like, okay, I'm moving back to Argentina and I'm starting this agency and I'm going to put a name on it, rent an office and all that. And that's when Umbu Labs was born. I want to say like around 2012, 2013. And then we started doing Ruby on Rails development for other companies in the US and Canada. Yeah. I'm curious to know a little bit more about how you got into like programming rails development to begin with is that something that you done as a kid or did you find it in school after school yeah i guess i kind of have like a really boring story where i actually went to software engineering school <laughs> and <laughs> oh, i know like, those <laughs> yeah i'm one of those boring folks that just studied it and found a passion in programming and started doing java development and 
then at some point I was like, oh, let's start an agency with my friends from college. And that's kind of like my first agency is not Umbulabs, it's another one that I started with my friends from college. And were you doing Rails then? Yeah, actually, like started doing like Rails development for our first client. And oh, that's cool. Our client was like, we want you guys to do either Django or Rails. And after a few weeks of research, we're like, okay, let's go with Rails. It seems like the community is like a lot friendlier. And I don't know, we really like maths. So around what time was this? It was like 2009, I think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And And Rails uh, was really getting popular then. Yeah. Yeah. I think like it was around the time when Rails and Merv were about to merge. Uh Yeah. Sounds right. Rails. That's about when I started learning Rails too. Oh, cool. So you were with your friends starting to work on the agency. And how long did that last? And then is that when you moved on to do the startup with the funding? You know, we were six partners, six friends, and it was just like way too many. And we were just yeah, that's do, a lot. trying to do way too many things like we're doing like .NET, we're doing java we're doing rails and we're just like seven people so it's just like i was like why don't we just specialize in one thing and then yeah i mean things didn't work out i ended up selling my part and going solo for about a year or two and yeah i just knew like how much money i could make being a freelance developer and i was like founder of a small agency making like really not a lot of money. I was in debt and I was like, I need to make more money. And I was like, okay, I'll just do freelance development for startups. And yeah, I paid all my debts. And then I was like, okay, I have enough money to start building a product. And that's how it started. I was just like very passionate about building a product, a SaaS. And I think like as freelance developers, that's kind of like the dream we usually have is like, oh, we can build a product that makes us money in our sleep. And (laughs) Of course, it's not as easy as that. And it's hard to admit it, but I failed at that. But I did succeed in building an agency that's profitable. So anyway, yeah. So what happened to the Shopify app? It's still up and running. So actually, if you go to ombushop.com, it's still there. But we're going to be sunsetting it at the end of the year. I just haven't had the time to do it. And it's hard to sunset something because it's like, I've been building it for like 10 years and it's like, I just need to like come up with an announcement and like restrict signups and stuff like that. And I'm just like, I always find like excuses not to go and do it. So that's basically, I'm the main blocker in sunsetting that product right now. I had to sunset one of my apps that I spent five or six years on recently. And it was like my big side project for several years. It was the thing that people always ask me about, like, how is Setter doing? How is this product and it was the emotions of it. Like that was the hard part. It was like the tasks weren't that difficult. It was just like finally putting this message up on the site saying, I've taken this thing down. That was the hard part. Oh, it just like yeah. still hurts. You put all this time and love into a thing that you build. And then when it fails, like to have to close up shop and <laughs> let people know what feels like bad news, you know, or when people ask you what happened to it, having to keep telling them over and over again. And kind of reliving it is difficult. Yeah. What was the product about? It's called Stetter, as in Homesteader. So there's this whole, I don't know if you're into this or not, but there's this whole subculture of people that do homesteading, like basically living off the land, whether you're in the suburbs or in the country. And our videos were great and the platform was great. Just couldn't find like the customers. Like 
the easier part was actually getting the instructors, like working with them to do like profit sharing and stuff like that, but finding enough customers. And that's always been my problem is like building stuff's the easy part. And then like marketing (laughs) is the hard part (laughs) or has been at least for me. You're not the only one. Yeah. Not just for you. Like I was just at microconf and this is like a common problem for us technical founders to say like, Oh, it's not enough to write like a really good code and have the latest version in production. It's like, you have to actually have to go out there and keep making like the marketing efforts to get people to notice like what you're doing. Yeah, totally. That's really shifted my focus in the past year or so. I've just got to get better at marketing. I've got to get better at marketing myself, any services or products that I want to offer. Like I have to crack this nut or I'm just not going to be able to do those kind of things. But I've also come to accept at least on the consulting freelancing side that I really like building stuff and it's okay if it's not my thing that I can join someone else. And maybe it's, I don't know if this is how it is for you doing agency work, but finally coming to acceptance that like, these are a whole bunch of things I don't even have to think about now. I can just build it and kind of partner with the person who's got this vision and kind of relinquish the marketing parts. Those parts that I usually pick last anyway, they wouldn't be my default tasks to do. And then I can do more of the fun stuff. At least what feels like fun to me. Yeah, it's sort of interesting you mentioned that because I was going to ask Ernesto, how did you go from that mindset of being a freelancer? And I assume you probably had like a pretty full plate at the time. I don't know. Let's just say you're doing $10,000 a month and then you say, okay, I need to grow and I want to hire a developer. How did you make that leap from your like your budget and your income to just hire a new developer? Did you hire a developer first and then go find new clients? Or did you find new clients first and then pull in the developer? How did you balance all that? Yeah, I guess it it helped that I had a product at the time. So when I hired a developer, I put them to work on the product. And then I was doing consulting for the other startups. And then at some point I was like, well, maybe just like I'm doing like consulting plus product development, I can do the same thing with another developer, just have them work like 20 to 30 hours a week on this consulting gig. And then like the rest of the time, they can just add value to the product. So I always have been very much like focused on like not assigning like the developers that I hire 40 hours a week to a client project because I'm a developer. So I know that if you're not learning something new every week, you're probably going to leave the company. So what we do these days is like we assign people at most 30 hours a week to a client project. And then they have the rest of the week to to do open source or do research or play around with Elixir or other technologies. So yeah, I think it's very important to have that space. And other people might see it as like, oh, but you're hurting profitability. You know, you could be so much more profitable if you had them working 40 hours a week on a client project. But you know, retention is also very important and we want to keep that high too. When you first started bringing that first developer on, was the goal then to build X number of people in your agency? Did you have a goal that you wanted to hit or was it just, I'm going to keep adding as I need to accomplish the work? Yeah, I think it was always about balance, you know, and it's it's hard when you yeah grow your agency. That means like you need to add unbillable people and kind of like overhead. So we have like an operations team now and we have an office admin and we have like a bunch of project managers that need to be there to make sure that we deliver the things that we say we're going to deliver. So I think right now it's kind of like a question of balance, like how many more billable people do we need to add to provide like the quality services we're proud of? 
How did you move from, if you're doing consulting work with clients, how did you move from them trusting you as Ernesto to them trusting this company that might be you, might be somebody else too? Do you have any tricks or things that you'd recommend there for people that are doing that, making that transition? Yeah, that's a, a great question because, yeah, it's hard to do the transition from like, okay, I'm no longer Ernesto. Now I'm Umble Labs and you should trust Umble Labs. Yeah. How do you trust Umble Labs? I think it's a combination of things and it kind of all comes back to marketing. We do case studies, we do exit interviews, we collect testimonials from the people that work with us. We have a content marketing strategy where every developer was at the company needs to publish at least one article every two months. So it's like not too much for a developer, but it does add up and it helps us have like a, an active blog at Mumble Labs and we talk about the things that we do. So yeah, I think marketing is the key there. It's like if you come up with a marketing strategy, it needs to be focused on building the brand as an authority in certain field. And one of the things we quickly learned is, you know, there were just like so many rails agencies out there. So it's like we can never compete on price because there are many agencies in India that will always be able to charge less than us. So what we thought was like, okay, how can we differentiate ourselves from all the other rails agencies out there? And that's when productized services came to be. It's like, okay, how can we like specialize in this very specific technical debt niche of dependencies and upgrading rails and all that. So that's what's okay. Let's come up with fastruby.io. And that's like another brand that was kind of like a sub niche of the rails agency niche that focused on the problem. And we already had like a bunch of articles about upgrading rails. So we're like, okay, we're just going to move all of those to a new domain. So now when people come to us, we are the upgrade experts, so we can charge premium rates because we're competing against like maybe like three to five other agencies out there instead of hundreds of Rails agencies out there. Were you noticing a pattern with existing client work coming in that was a big need and then decided to like niche down on that? Or was it a choice ahead of time to say like, okay, I think there is an opportunity here. Let's see if it emerges. Yeah, I just encourage everybody to get on as many sales calls as possible because these ideas are quickly tested in a sales call where you're like, hey, I know you need Rails work on some of these things that we could do for you as like Rails performance optimization or Rails upgrade projects. Like we are thinking about specializing in this because we are doing so much of this type of work for our existing clients. So that's kind of how it came to be. I was in a sales call is trying to get this client to work with us. And I was like, okay, how can we like entice them or like tempt them to work with us? And then we were like, oh, we're thinking about launching this Rails upgrade service. And they were like, oh, actually, yeah, we really need help upgrading Rails. And that's how the first upgrade project came to be. It's just like me pitching this idea in our sales call and then being like, oh yeah, we actually have that problem. We need you to work on it. And Let's start with that as like the first project. And eventually that turned into a staff augmentation deal. But yeah, sales calls are really great to like test any of these ideas that you have as a productized service to say like, hey, yeah, we're thinking about this and then see how the client reacts. Do you keep notes about that or is it mostly just kind of in your head? You've got this pattern emerging from calls or especially maybe if you have a team of people on sales calls, how do you manage that? 
Yeah. Fortunately, yeah, it's in my head. So that's yeah. <laughs> bad when you have a team of 20 that rely on you. So I've been like slowly training my BizDev coordinator who mm-hmm. joined about a year ago. And yeah, it's hard to transition myself out of the sales calls because these things, I'm confident to come to a sales call and say like, oh yeah, we could do this and we could do that and just promise things that haven't happened yet where my BizDev coordinator might be a little more reluctant to be like, oh yeah, sure, we could do X. So anyway, one of the lessons that I learned recently is that it was too soon for me to leave the sales calls because of this sort of work where it's like, I've been doing sales calls for more than 10 years on the technical front. So I have an ear that listens to all these opportunities. And sometimes you get on a sales call just to present like a Rails upgrade roadmap. And the client is like, oh, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. We like the upgrade roadmap, but we need you to own this JavaScript component. And we're like, oh, okay. Like, this is like a totally new thing. We do have a JavaScript team that can work on your project, but it's kind of random. Sometimes you get on a sales call and they're like, the client doesn't even know what they need or they think they need something, but they need something There's a need else. behind the need or something and recognizing those yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. You kind of have to go digging and asking like, yeah, where are we talking about this? Like, what do you need here and how can we help you? So like trying to think like all the services that we could provide and try to understand the problem. So you need to train your ear for something like that. Yeah, it's a real art. It's like discovering what people are asking for and figuring out what they need. Yeah. And even I was just at MicroConf talking to a lot of SaaS founders and trying to understand how we can provide services to more startups because right now the Rails upgrade services are more for like corporate clients, public companies that are running really old versions of Rails in production. You'd be surprised at how many there are out there. But we're trying to think like, how can we work more with startups? And I was just talking to a lot of founders there and technical debt is not their priority. They just want to sell their product, get more clients and then upgrade at some point in the future. So I kept bringing up this idea of a fixed cost monthly maintenance package that we could do for startups to work with their budget. And I want to say that it wasn't a success. <laughs> At least like the feedback that I got is like, yeah, that sounds interesting. But yeah, I don't know if we would pay for something like that. There were maybe like one or two founders that sounded interested in something like that. So I don't know. We might experiment with that in our website or something like that. Did you get the impression that the people you were talking to, did they already have a developer or a team on their product? Or was it typically like they go out, they contract with an agency or somebody to build it, and now they're sort of on their own and they may need help time to time? Or It's probably all over the place, right? The impression that I got is like a lot of the founders at MicroConf have built it themselves or they're, they have like a technical founder and a non-technical founder. So a lot of like two people duos, two people teams, and they built it themselves. Like they know they need to upgrade and keep up with open source and the libraries and all that, but they just don't have the time because there's a lot more value in shipping a feature than in upgrading the version of Ruby. Yeah, because they don't even know if they're going to be around in six months. So if they fail, then if they're behind long-term support, it's not really a priority for them. Well, I know a lot of the founders at MicroConf, this might be a little bit of selection bias, but a lot of the people there have profitable business. They found a niche and oh my gosh, they're just like super specific niches. I love that actually. Like 
There's mm-hmm. so many different niches there. And you're like, oh, you're in this niche. I had no idea you could build a profitable business <laughs> yeah. on top of that niche. And they're like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, I have a family of four and I have a profitable business and it's growing and all. But I think like most of the people at MicroConf have profitable business. And what I love about that is like they're not leaning on funding or anything. It's more bootstrap people that just found a niche, found a problem, fixed it really well. And have been like marketing it the right way. So they're growing and stuff. Yeah, that's a good point. If they've made it to MicroConf, there's not a lot of venture funded people at MicroConf. And if they've made it to MicroConf, they've probably had some success. For sure. And there is some funding in that community. There's like the Calm Fund and Tiny Seed, yeah. which mm-hmm. are like more like entrepreneur friendly funds. But uh, yeah, I think most of the people there are bootstrapped and just made it work. And that's why I love about that community. Everybody's like very open and happy to talk about their experience. I have this idea that if you are in a company that's bootstrapped, maybe you're more likely to deal with technical debt earlier or in an ongoing sustainable way than you would if you're venture backed that you might like sort of extend your runway longer and say like, I can delay this until we get some spark at some point, then we can throw a bunch of money or time at dependency upgrades and things like that. Do you think that's true? Or have you seen anything like that? I think there's something there. I think product people have an easier sell. You know, They're like, oh, if we add the HubSpot integration, we're going to get 10% more signups and we're going to have a way more profit. When it comes to technical debt, I think it, we're having a really hard time quantifying like what's the impact of not upgrading. Because many times it's like you're running an unsupported version in production and you're exposing yourself to like getting hacked or losing data that you don't want to lose. But it's harder to say like, oh, well, the probability is like you have like a 10% of getting hacked because you're running Rails 4.2 in production and you could lose like millions. You could lose your business basically if someone just grabs your database because they found like a very specific hack of this like known vulnerability so i think what we are focusing now on is just like communicating like what is the impact of technical debt or exposing yourself in production and i'm sure like we'll be publishing like a few articles in the fast ruby blog in future weeks with the people that come into fast ruby and use your upgrading services when you get toward the end of the engagement, do you ever find that there are, you're sort of solving the upgrade problem, but maybe there's other things that led to the fact that they weren't managing dependencies? That's like an, another problem, maybe behind that. Have you found that to be true? And are you able to address those? Or is it mostly like, well, no, we've done this and now you need to kind of take the reins from here to make sure you're not kind of don't fall back into this spot again? Yeah. A lot of the clients we work with, they're happy with the work we do and they understand like all the code changes that we made. And then at some point, yes, they feel like they're confident enough to say, oh, we can use dual booting to upgrade and keep track of Rails main or something like that. So yeah, we have noticed that every engagement that we have, like a lot of the clients might not engage with us in the future for another upgrade because they have the tools and they have the knowledge after engaging with us. So then that's why we think of like other things we could do for them, like performance optimization. Recently, we partnered with Nate Berkopek to offer a performance audit called Tune. 
And we see a lot of opportunities there where it's like, okay, we did the upgrade for you and now we can do performance work for you. And then maybe in the future we can do staff log for you and move you from this huge monolith to, I don't know, a component-based architecture. So we're always on the lookout for like new opportunities to add value to our clients because the upgrade problem is something that at some point engineering teams should just own and do and add it to every sprint that they do and like gradually upgrade some of the dependencies every month. So that's kind of like where we want our clients to move towards to so they're more professional and they don't end up in the same situation of running like a 10-year-old code base or library in production anymore. How do you manage pricing something like a Rails upgrade? We love this idea of road mapping. I think Brennan Dunn used to talk about this a lot like mm-hmm. many years ago. But the idea is like we charge for an initial two-week engagement with just an audit. We charge $12,000 for that. Funny thing is like we used to charge like way less. So it's been like gradually like growing in terms of pricing because we notice like we can add more and more value to that audit. And the audit is focuses on technical debt. So like what files could be like a problem if we do the upgrade for you? Or is your test suite ready for us to do the upgrade? We are very much like test driven. (laughs) We need to make sure that your test suite passes with the current version of Rails and the next version of Rails. So at the end of the day, the report will give you an idea of your technical debt, the action plan, and kind of the estimates. We still estimate, you know, worst, best case scenario, we think this upgrade is going to take between four and seven weeks with two engineers working full time. And then the clients can decide like, oh, yeah, I want to do the upgrade with these guys or I want to do the upgrade with my team. My product tracked used your Tune product. And the report we got back was very detailed. It was much more than I thought it was. And there were actually like a lot of code examples in there that I could have probably just copy and pasted into my application to get it running. So I was very impressed with that. Well, thank you. Can I use that as a testimonial in our landing page? Yeah. This is awesome. How did that relationship form with Nate Berkopak? Did you reach out to him or did he find you? How'd that happen? So many years ago, I think uh, MicroConf, we connected and we started like a small Rails mastermind. It was like Nate and a couple other folks in the Rails space. And yeah, that's been running for about four years. A couple of years ago, Nate decided to join Gusto and then mm-hmm. he stopped offering the tune report. So I run the idea by him. It's like, what if we offered it and we partner and there's like a commercial relationship where it's like every referral that we get from Nate, we pay a commission, but also Nate trained us to know his ways and basically have our team know what to look for in a tune report. And we did one for Jess and the company Jess is working at. And we also did a few others that were like really, really long performance reports. So one of the things that we're thinking of is like changing and offering two versions of the tune report, because sometimes a client comes to us with a very specific problem. Like they might have timeouts, they might have like long running, very slow background jobs or stuff like that. And they're like, can you focus on this? And we're like, yeah, sure. We'll do a tune report on these things that are causing you pain. But sometimes they just come to us to know overall how they're doing compared to the industry. And then 
those reports can be like way bigger. Like we've done like reports that are like 70 pages long and they can be like very extensive. So yeah, at this point, we're trying to define like what are the two versions of the tomb report we could do for two different types of clients. Okay, so Ernesto, I'm kind of curious about how you feel about the future of Rails. Is your shop going to continue to be a Rails-focused shop or do you foresee it moving into other frameworks? Or you mentioned JavaScript framework, so I guess that's already a part of your answer, but... What are you thinking about for future plans? What does it look like the next two, three years for Rails developers? I'm excited to be in the community and to sponsor it as much as possible. I think the future is bright. Like there are a lot of things happening. A lot of Rails JavaScript work is being done as well. Our preferred stack is usually like Rails in the back end and React on the front end. So we do a lot of React JS and we've noticed that a lot in the when we talk to clients, it's usually like, oh yeah, we have like a Rails API and all the business logic in the back end is Ruby and Rails. But then on the front end, they have usually like a React JS front end. Even having said that, I think like Rails is moving really fast and it's moving in the right direction. One of the things that we could do better is like on being more friendly for the junior developers out there. I remember like back in the day, 10 years ago, it was very easy. You just gem install Rails new and it just worked. These days it's not so much like that. It's like, oh, well, you have to have node, whatever, 16 installed. And that's like, instead of like just having two commands to do it, then it's like hard to get started. So I know there are efforts in there trying to make it more friendly for junior folks. But I'd like to see a little bit more of that, like more support for folks that are coming from different backgrounds that want to get into Rails, maybe have like an easier time getting started. I assume your Twitter feed is kind of like mine. It's just full of AI and like replacing developers. And I think DHH just had a blog post about oil lamps versus light bulbs and electricity being generated made the comparison of doing software development the old way versus how it could be maybe in the new way. And then I saw Kent Beck said something about he tried out ChatGPT for the first time and he said, I feel like 90% of my skills are now worth zero dollars or something like that. Does that bother you or is that just the overhype of Twitter? No, I think it is scary for us, like even as senior engineers, CTOs, it is scary to think like, oh, this thing could replace us in the future. I don't believe that's going to happen. Like, I think it's definitely going to be a tool that we add to our toolbox and we use it to maybe be faster or to get unblocked when we're blocked. I know I've used ChatGPT, not for coding so much, but I definitely interested in trying it out and using it. But I think at the end of the day, prompt engineering is going to be a thing where you're a software engineer, you're using ChatGPT or whatever AI ML tool is out there. And you're going to need to be able to tell it like what you want it to do. Because at the end of the day, it's like, sure, you can build an whatever AI tool or an app tool that kind of rewrites itself and stuff. But at the end of the day, you need to like try to tell it what's expected and what's not expected, what's kind of like the best user experience, what steps should it take. And yeah, it is scary, but I don't think it's going to replace developers anytime soon. I think it's going to be another tool in our toolbox that we'll need to use to stitch everything together to provide like solutions to problems that are out there. Mm -hmm. 
And one of the things that is hard to do, and I talk to a lot of clients and startups, is like to define the problem that you're trying to solve. So it's like, how do you define the problem to then like come up with the best solution for it? And that's where I think the human factor is still going to be needed. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Agreed. Have you guys played around with ChatGPT or with GitHub Copilot? Oh, yeah. It's a daily tool for me now. Yeah, I've been using Copilot. I decided to give myself a month to try to work with it. One of the hardest things for me is I love Sublime and I don't like VS Code. <laughs> so I just get really annoyed. I was using it today to write some tests and that was nice. That seems like one of the most straightforward ways to do like just writing fast tests that are simple and obvious, not difficult tests. Yeah, it does a good job of just filling in those expectations. Right. It still created factories instead of building them when I you know, needed to use build. So it was still going to watch it. It's not going to give me the best test, the most performant test in those cases. But I'm also working with one of my clients or integrating... OpenAI, a lot of OpenAI API stuff with the app and using it for a number of things around content marketing. And that's been really interesting just to to use it in that way as part of a product. What's been your thought on using that API? You've been pretty impressed or? Yeah, that's very impressive. One of the hardest things is at least using it in a product so far that I found is getting structured data out of it. Right. You know, if you want to get a list of blog post titles. How do you get that from it in a reliable way that no matter what, give me a list of blog post titles with matching these topics or this keyword or something. How do you ensure that it doesn't give it to you in... If you just like parse the lines, maybe it adds descriptions on some of the lines so they're not titles. So then what do you do in that case? So it's almost like trying to like, if you've ever done like CSV imports where you're trying to like manage parsing of CSVs, you know, all the crap that can happen in those, but it's even worse. This is like, like really unstructured. I assume you have tried this, but have you tried asking for the return value to be like in JSON, JSON. format? Yeah. yeah. So I'm mostly relying on the prompts from my client. He's used it a lot more than I have, but even that can come back with invalid JSON and it ups your token count. So it costs more. So if you say in this format and then give it the format, then we may be doubling the tokens needed for each request. And if we're doing tons of requests, you know, that starts to get costly. So most of the things that we're doing right now are asking it to respond in Markdown and then using simple text parsing to get the values out that we want. The part that I'm most excited about is the ability to write tests Mm -hmm. based on your code. Actually, I would love to know if there is a tool out there. It would be pretty cool if you can like integrate it with the production application that basically, you know, you start feeding a model saying like, okay, this is the HTTP request. This is the response. And so for every request. You tell like chat GPT, like, hey, this is how the production application behaves. Like, you know, request response, request response. And then at some point it's like, okay, can you please write me test suite for test scenario for this action? And then it kind of based on the responses that it got, it can say like, okay, yeah, this is what the test would look like. And you just submit a pull request watch it pass. And then it's like, oh, great. You're slowly and gradually increasing code coverage. That part would be like super useful for our Rails upgrade business because sometimes we get clients who are like, yeah, my test suite covers only 20% of our code base. 
And then we're like, well, we need to address that first. And then we do the upgrade. So it becomes like another blocker for us to work with our clients. Yeah. If you could build a really fast safety net, even if it was maybe slightly less quality, you'd still be starting from a better position. Yeah, for sure. Might make certain projects even possible where they wouldn't be otherwise. So I wanted to ask, is there any magic secret to getting clients or is it just being out there all the time, constantly marketing different channels? That's like the main question we get. Like every time we are doing like either freelance or consulting, it's like, yeah, how do you get clients? Like that's top one question. And unfortunately, there's no magic recipe. It's a combination of things. And we've been trying things for like 10 plus years to get more inbound leads. Like we don't do a lot of outbound. Like I know other agencies out there do like outbound campaigns where it's basically like reaching out to people who are like working with Rails and being like, hey, do you need help with Rails? We don't do that sort of stuff. It's more like... We put a a lot of content. One of our core values is to be open by default, which means like anything that we write for internal projects or internal needs, we ask ourselves like, is there any reason to keep this close source or can we just like open source it? So ideally we open source as much as possible. The nice thing about that is like, we can just go to podcasts and talk about it and it's nothing like proprietary, nothing confidential. We can write articles about it. We can go to conferences and pitch talks about the thing. So yeah, I think like a lot of content marketing, a lot of open source. I'm also like very passionate about this idea of like engineering as marketing, like coming up with this micro tools that can serve your audience and help your audience. And then they're like, oh, this tool is cool. Who did that? It's like, oh, Fast Ruby did that tool. So yeah, I think like takes years to do content marketing right, do the open source thing. And then eventually it does drive inbound leads to our top of the funnel. One thing we noticed, like we've been investing in AdWords for many years and now like six months ago, it just stopped working. And organic searches are still driving leads to our top of the funnel. So yeah, unfortunately, it's hard to say like what is the key to driving leads to our top of the funnel because I feel like even though I've been doing this for more than 10 years, I haven't found like the formula to make it work. And I know I talk a lot about fastruby.io, which is the productized service for Rails upgrades, but we launched one focus on JavaScript like about three months ago. It's called upgradejs.com. And that one has zero organic leads right now. So any leads that we get are from paid efforts. Like we sponsor newsletter, like with Cooper Press, you can just put an ad there and drive people to your website to be like, okay, at least see what we're doing. And if you're interested, contact us. But yeah, a lot of the things that we do are problem-based. So what I would say is if you can think of like a problem that's very hard to do, hard to solve, if you think of a problem that nobody wants to solve, like technical debt is it's a thing like people know it's a problem and they need to fix it, but you know, nobody wants to do it. Like we as developers usually want to build stuff and come up with ideas and solutions and all that, but nobody wants to do the work of like upgrading dependencies. So that's why I think like fastruby.io and like the Rails upgrade thing is something that works. That doesn't mean that you just go and create a landing page and it's like, oh, now I do Rails upgrades, so I'm going to get a ton of clients. No, unfortunately, it's not how it works. 
You have to like go to conferences, do the workshops, do online workshops, do content marketing, open source. And then all of those things will basically get to Google and Google is going to be like, oh, if you're looking for someone to do a Rails upgrade service, you go to fastruby.io or you go to one of our competitors. There are a few competitors out there, but it's not a magical thing. Do you feel like your audience is developers or investors or company owners or just a mix? So recently we started doing some research or trying to like categorize the people that get to our website. And we came up with a set of personas. I want to say like most of our traffic is the software engineer that just needs to upgrade and this doing it themselves, right? So those people are great and we love them. Like we have worked with them on every upgrade project that we do. But at the end of the day, they're not the one who are going to make the decision to hire you or not. They're definitely going to go up to their boss, who's like a CTO, VP of engineering or something, and be like, hey, I know we need to upgrade. And these guys do upgrades. I just need to pay the money to do it. And then their boss is going to be like, oh, okay, well, yeah, I don't want to disrupt my product roadmap. So I'm going to just contact these guys and see what they charge and basically get them to do it for us. So then those folks are usually more interested in like the business articles that we publish. Yeah. What are the benefits of upgrading? Like what's the cost of not upgrading and stuff like that. So when we publish articles, we think about these personas and we think about like making our audiences lives easier to upgrade if they want to do it themselves. We know that people contact us and work with us, not because they don't know how to upgrade rails. Like they can figure it out. They're engineers, right? They just don't have the time, have the time and they yeah. have the budget to do it with us. Yeah. Yeah. I think you have to appease several people in the chain, right? If there's a developer on the project, then you want to get their buy-in. If there's a CTO, you want to get their buy-in. And if they have a manager or CEO, you have to get their buy-in. So unfortunately, it's not a one-person sale process. That's why I love working with startups, to be honest, because they're just like, one or two levels. Yeah. It's just like you get one person and then another, and then it's like, okay, let's do it. And it's very quickly a project that starts like from one week to the other. Are there any big hurdles to jump to like moving from just domestic companies to working with international companies? I think the biggest hurdle is just the coming up with the content to rank high enough for certain keywords. I've never done it. So I don't know if there are like tax difficulties or other things you have to do to, to make that a challenge when you're going in the international market. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge is the time zone. You know, like yeah. we don't overlap with them that much. Like I actually have a call with them later today and that's at 7 p.m. my time. So it's like, I don't usually have calls that late, but it's like, okay, for this client, I'll do it. What have you learned about building a remote and or international team? I think the biggest learning is that culture doesn't just happen. If you were all in the same office, then culture just happens. You go out for beers and stuff, or you go to the water cooler and you talk about your personal lives. For remote first companies like ours, like we have to come up with like strategies and see what sticks. Like we work with tools like Donut, you know, Donut kind of like facilitates like informal meetings during work hours between our team to create personal connections. We use Know Your Team, which also has kind of like a recurring feature which posts questions to everybody. We do have like a lot of calls, all hands calls, like 
I mean, the all hands calls are just like once a week, but we do try to like do like fun things once every two weeks. We'll do like remote games and stuff. But yeah, it doesn't just happen. And the amount of money that you save on not renting a big office, I recommend that you use it to organize a team retreat once a year, which we just did. Like last week, we went to Costa Rica and it was like a great experience yeah, to connect and get to know each other a little bit better. Ernesto, it's been so good to have you on the show today. I've really enjoyed getting to know you and learn about your company, Umbu Labs. Thank you for sharing with us today. Before you go, is there anything you wanted to share with us? Where can people find you? Are you going to be anywhere, conferences or anything like that in the next couple months? So if you are interested in anything related to like technical debt in the JavaScript or Ruby world, feel free to check out our websites, upgradejs.com or fastruby.io. And yeah, if you work at a startup and you might be interested in a fixed cost monthly maintenance service, feel free to reach out. Like I'm on Twitter and Mastodon. Just shoot me a message and I'd love to at least talk to you to learn from what it is to handle like technical debt in a startup environment. And yeah, I think that's it. I won't be at any conferences anytime soon, but maybe I will be at this conference in North Carolina soon. I don't know. It's like very close to my birthday. So that's like (laughs) my only concern, you know? Cool. So speaking of conferences in North Carolina, how's Blue Ridge Ruby planning? It's coming along. I got my sticker order from Sticker Mule like yesterday, I think. I'm all ready for RailsConf and hopefully it's okay to put my stickers for Blue Ridge Ruby on the RailsConf sticker table. If if not, you'll just be a rebel and put them on there anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's coming together. My wife and I have been talking about all the uh, drinks and snacks, you know, like figuring that kind of stuff out and tons of details left to go, but we're a little less than two months. So I'm feeling pretty good. Feeling pretty good about it. And people haven't heard Blue Ridge Ruby. It's June 8th and 9th. And you can sign up for a ticket at blueridgeruby.com. All right, guys. Well, that's the show. If you enjoyed it, please share on Twitter, subscribe to our podcast feed. And thank you for listening. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.